It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York, heard around the country, where around the world uh, in this region got slammed. The Northeast got slammed. It was sudden. It was shocking. We watched what happened in Louisiana. The hurricane downgraded even below a tropical storm, but massive flooding brought the number one city or the most populous city in the country uh, really to its knees. And multiple people have died, including a young child. So we'll cover the weather story as it develops, but I also know we're listen- you're listening around the country where it might be the sun might be shining. You might have a great day and not know what I'm talking about. Bottom of the hour, Ian Bremmer will talk about this cataclysmic situation in Afghanistan and how we're perceived by the rest of the world. This guy's got a great perspective, great international context. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is no evidence that cloth masks have any impact. No significant impact with cloth masks for people who have COVID as defined by COVID symptoms with antibody documentation. So cloth masks are worthless according to this study. Dr. Scott Atlas, and he's talking about a study that's pretty much well circulated that shows it only makes you 10% safer. Is it worth it retarding the growth of our kids by doing this for a second consecutive year in schools? Meanwhile, COVID-19's Delta variant is receding. Nobody wants to talk about that. A call to mask up despite the flimsy evidence is driving parents crazy and dividing communities across the country. And the recommendation for that booster shot is getting pushback. Pushback from people inside the FDA and pushback from the WHO. And while the unvaccinated are told, don't travel on Labor Day. Number two. I think the worst thing is violating our military's credo of no man left behind, no one left behind. We left our American citizens behind. We left interpreters behind, and they have a death warrant on them, a bullseye on their back. They will be killed by the Taliban. Somehow that it's the American citizens' fault for not getting out is just astounding. It is. Uh, Congressman Michael McCall with us yesterday, left behind. More stories of Americans and allies not getting out, including journalists, valuable to the American message of freedom. Number one. People have to begin now to assess whether this president was the man, the president they thought he was and would be. This is the first big foreign policy issue of his presidency, the first big crisis. And the condemnation of it has been virtually unanimous across the board, including many Democrats. But not from AOC and not from Speaker Pelosi. Despicable and not spinnable, Mr. President. Your words, your actions, your staff behind the veil reveals you knew it was bad all along and you told us a different story. Yes, you told us a different story and now we're all witnessing the catastrophe you caused in Afghanistan and the damage you have done to American honor and prestige. And now we know the content of that call with the uh, former president of Afghanistan, Gahani, where the president admitted essentially that things aren't going well, but the perception's got to change and the narrative's got to change. Yeah, so you knew about it on July 8th and you told us they have a 300,000 man army and they're going to do fine against the Taliban. It's not inevitable the Taliban take over. You set everybody on uh, vacation and next thing you know, the Taliban 
own that country. Our men and women are running for their lives. Our allies have to run to the to the closets and hide out in safe houses, and then you promise to fly them out. And you say 10%. I say the number is a lot higher. Never got out. And calls with uh, from men and women with passports in their hand were ignored with 48 hours until they had to go. That's according to, we witnessed all that. And that story of that phone call is uh, chronicled pretty well in that uh, that uh, in the Reuters report and picked up by every major newspaper across the country. You're upset about the Zelensky call, the president of Ukraine, with President Trump. You want to impeach that? That's politics. This is life and death. And guess who won't talk about it? Jen Psaki, because she can't dispute it, because Reuters published it and it's a transcript. And if you deny it, it makes it worse. Cut three. Well, I'm not going to get into private diplomatic conversations or leaked transcripts of phone calls. Uh, But what I can reiterate for you is that we have stated many times that no one anticipated uh, the vast majority, I should say. There may have been individuals and agencies, so I don't want to eliminate that option. But uh, our uh, national security team and no one in Congress or I would say most people out in the public anticipated that the Taliban would be able to take over the country as quickly as they did or that the Afghan National Security Forces would fold as quickly as they did. Well, the question is, is she lying or does she actually believe what she just said? Because everybody else was watching province after province fall and wondering, when's the last stand going to happen? So Reuters report. Here's an excerpt that I think is worth recording, jotting down. Here's the quote. In much of the call, Biden focused on what he called the Afghan government's perception problem. Direct quote from Biden. I need not tell you the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things are not going well. And in terms of the fight against the Taliban. Now, here's the big line. And there is a need, whether it's true or not, there is a need to project a different picture. That doesn't bother the Chris Hayes because All the Biden allies, which is everyone outside of a few outlets like Fox, and I'm not cheering against him. I want him to be a great president. He's not close. Chris Hayes on MSNBC sees the spiraling ratings and the wallowing president and tweets this out. Telling the failing Afghan government to fake it till you make it is a means of extending its reign as long as possible is a sad statement on the cumulative U.S. failures in Afghanistan but not a scandal any more than the war itself is. AOC, in case you're wondering why people are going on TV relentlessly attacking Biden for his courageous decision to leave Afghanistan when no other president would, here's one glimpse as to why. War is an addiction for the few who reap its profits while the rest of us foot the bill. Yes, tell everyone running for their lives for a continued taste of freedom and democracy that it's an addiction. It's an addiction to have a life with your family. It's an addiction not to be beheaded. That's what it's about, an addiction. And I can't read any more praise, but there is another major one from the teachers' union, the number one teachers' union in the country. So now you got about 60 lawmakers who are saying this guy should be impeached. I'm tired of the impeachment talk. It's not going to happen. Majorities in both houses. You need the 60 votes. I don't want the exercise. I want the focus on the country. Dan Hoffman, who worked in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Russia, all around the world, saw this phone call, saw the results of it and with the American prestige, sees that we no longer have eyes and ears on the ground. Cut nine. 
There's a couple of really critical issues right now for the United States and our national security. First and foremost is getting our American citizens out of harm's way, those who are still in Afghanistan. The Biden administration really hasn't indicated what their plan is to do that. Secondly, Afghanistan is morphing before our eyes into a terrorist state with al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, I think they're only going to grow into that ungoverned space that the Taliban allows them. What is the Biden administration's plan to deal with that? None. They want to move on and talk about infrastructure. They want to say they're pivoting to China but not taking China on. Now they're saying, I have an idea. Let's talk without preconditions to North Korea. I thought Donald Trump was crazy to do that. So we're coming up on 20 years since 9-11, and it's the administration's sense that after 9-11 we get that behind us, people forget about Afghanistan. Right now, he's got 48% approval rating. That's of last week. Three of ten when asked by Morning Consult. Three of ten thinks they did a good job getting out of Afghanistan. 70% of the country does not agree. Being that this is by 44% of the country is Democrat and a 41% is Republican, it's pretty significant. Bill McGurn weighed in. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, former speechwriter for George W. Bush. He was there on 9-11. He knows how much the speeches meant and the war on terror and how much progress we made. And he knows it's gone. Cut 10. We've just surrendered 9-11 forever to the Islamic jihadist. It is now a double victory celebration for them. First, the original al-Qaeda strike on America. And second, the Taliban victory um, that we see right now in Kabul. You know, it, it, it just seems to me we're back to that pre-9-11 thinking. Remember when people used to say al-Qaeda was at war with us long before we were at war with al-Qaeda? And I think Joe Biden's spin that somehow the world watches the spectacle of us leaving fellow Americans behind enemy lines and concludes that America has greater resolve and greater capabilities going forward is just farcical. It is. So he's blamed Trump. He said 19 times, I told you to get out of there. Some have decided to stay, but we'll try to get you out. Most of the SIVs, the people that helped us out, they qualify, are still in the country. Widespread reports from Laura Logan and others, mass murder is going on, executions in front of families, then the families will be wiped out. I know many people believe we had to leave. I wanted a presence there. I believe the Islamic terrorist threat still remains. The Salafist Sunnis will never take their foot off the gas. Our success was killing them before they killed us. We no longer have eyes and ears. We can't see how the different terror groups interact, who the higher-ups are, where they travel, what they're looking to do, how they're financed. All that stuff is virtually gone. Picked up on satellites, perhaps, over the horizon, 60%. I mean, we have to go so far for a Reaper drone to get back in front of Afghanistan. If we did have a target, how long are they actually going to stay put? Um, I have more analysis for you. I do want to discuss some other things about the people left behind, how to get them out, and also COVID-19. Did you hear about this? Unvaccinated people told not to travel this holiday. Is this still America? 1-866-408. 7669669. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'll be back with your calls and comments. Don't move. A radio show of the people for the people. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There are literally wounded Afghan special operations soldiers who were wounded before we pulled out, who are lying in their hospital beds, waiting to be executed by these Islamic terrorists who they were fighting and now the U.S. is supporting and saying, well, maybe we'll give them aid. We don't want to call them an enemy. And this has just been a great success. I mean, the thousands of desperate Afghans, I've lost count, Tucker. I'm drowning under the cries for help. And it is heartbreaking. And I cannot tell you how many soldiers and veterans and other people are just, uh, they're trying to put their shock and their heartache aside to do what the government isn't doing, which is live up to America's promise to leave no man behind. Lara Logan's been reporting on this since 60 Minutes, and she knows what's happening on the ground. Steve, listening on WRC on Long Island. Hey, Steve. Hi, Brian. My question is, if if, if Biden, who states that in March he told people to get out of Afghanistan, How the heck did he allow 29 grade school kids from California to go visit (laughs) Afghanistan and be turned away at the gate? You believe that? And Daryl Isis doing more than they are to get him out. That's a great point. Steve, he was not telling us the truth, but this isn't just about political fortunes. This is about life and death. Do you know we left most of the SIVs, those are the people that qualify behind? Do you know that? I know all of that. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I want you to hear this, too. This is um, this is John from, I'm not sure what organizations he's with now, but he did some original reporting last night that aired on Sean's, uh, Sean's show, John Solomon. And here's what he said happened. Remember, General McKenzie said, I sat in that plane with open seats on the last flight out, and I was hoping more Americans would join me, but they never came. You know why they didn't come? The door was locked. The gate was closed. Cut cut 20. There's a scene unfolding Saturday and Sunday while the spinsters at the Pentagon, the State Department, and the White House are saying any American who wants to come home is going to be able to come home. Meanwhile, there are Americans waving their passports. They got through the Taliban checkpoints. They're at the gate that the U.S. military controls. They're waving their passports. We are Americans. Let us in. And they were turned away. Uh, And a colonel who is witnessing this from afar in a command center, says, we're bleeping leaving American citizens behind. He could not believe it. Either can I. Uh, and so many. You saw that lieutenant colonel in the Marines who basically resigned after 17 years, gave up his pension worth $2 million because nobody would, nobody is holding themselves accountable. Larry in Florida. Hey, Larry. Hi, how you doing, Brian? Thanks for having me. No, what's on your mind? Um, I just wanted to say, um, when the allowing of the airport to be surrounded. Um, I had two interpreters over in Afghanistan that I called immediately when this went on to see what I could do to help get their families out. Both of them have families that are over there. When he he has three family members that worked for U.S. forces as a contractor and as interpreters, and they had their documentation. If they would have made it to the airport, they would have gotten in flying colors. The problem is if the Taliban would have caught them, they wouldn't have lived to get to the gate. That, I think, was our biggest problem that we had was losing Bagram. We should have held Bagram. We could have held Kia and Bagram. And I just don't understand how our, our military leaders could have allowed one president to make that choice on how we exited. 
Listen, he bulked up to 5,800 troops, but he wanted to be down to hundreds of troops. He realized there was no choice. But if he was go Bagram, he'd have to get up with a few more troops because he'd have to create corridors, since you know the region better than I do, to, to allow people to come because it's a wide-open field, which made Bagram so secure. So he would need to go up to maybe 10,000 soldiers temporarily, and he wanted the optics to be we're getting out, not desperate to hold on bulking up. And he's and he keeps pray. We keep getting this faint praise of the Taliban. I hear more terror situations than I do uh, that I do. Uh, we're going to help the Americans get out situations. And now we're watching them in our armored vehicles, in our Black Hawks fly around. Thanks so much, Larry. Thanks for your service. Al Jazeera did give me a little bit of a good feeling. The Taliban is upset that we did actually disabled some equipment. Cut 18. The Taliban brought us here, and last night their mood was one of joy, celebration. They were shooting in the sky. There were, there were fireworks. They were very happy that the Americans had left. The mood here today is quite different. They are disappointed. They are angry. They say they feel betrayed because all of this equipment is broken beyond repair. They say that they expected the Americans to leave helicopters like this in one piece for their use. When I said to them, why do you think that the Americans would have left everything operational for you? They said, because we believe it is a national asset and we are the government now and this could have come uh, to great use for us. So they are very disappointed that a lot of this equipment uh, cannot be used any longer. My heart goes out to them. They don't have enough Blackhawks. They don't have enough armored vehicles, enough Humvees, enough rifles. They don't have enough handguns and grenades. They have gotten so much American assets. And I ask you, more I go back to that phone call. Can you imagine how many more there were when Joe Biden says the perception and the narrative has to change? Did anyone say, hey, Mr. President, while we wait for the perception and narrative to change and before we change, watch the government change? we got to get our stuff out. And don't tell me you gave it to the Afghans and it's their responsibility. It's our stuff. We have to explode it. We have to destroy it. We have to take it back. Instead, the whole country is like a weapons depot sponsored by us. Now, I know gradually without mechanics and without parts, most of this stuff will dissipate and be destroyed and be useless. But what about until then? Ian Brammer puts it in perspective from the global perspective next. He's president of the Eurasia Group. He'll be with us. I cannot wait to get his perspective on this. How we could possibly make an excuse for Joe Biden is beyond me. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. My predecessor had made a deal with the Taliban. When I came into office, we faced a deadline, May 1. The Taliban onslaught was coming. We faced one of two choices. Follow the agreement of the previous administration 
and extend it to have or extend to have more time for people to get out or send in thousands of more troops and escalate the war. That is a false choice that the president keeps spouting, and he's never called out on it. President of Eurasia Group, uh, G Zero Media, Ian Bremmer. Ian, can you believe the series of events that took place? First and foremost, do you think those are the two options that Joe Biden had? Um, I do think uh, that the drawdown of the U.S. troops that Biden had inherited Um, as well as the strengthening of the Taliban. And a lot of territory had been lost at that point, Um, and a lot of lives on the part of the Afghan Defense Forces did mean that the policy review uh, came with the conclusion that uh, the existing troop presence was probably unsustainable if you wanted to maintain the status quo for the four years of of the Biden administration. I think I think that was legitimately the the um, recommendation that came out. But it's very different to say the only thing we could do is leave ourselves when you haven't talked to the allies about it. Um, and let's remember, Brian, and you know this very well, for 20 years, we asked the allies to, to come with us and we fought with them. And when we left, we did the policy review by ourselves and we didn't ask them what they thought or if they wanted to participate. In it. And as you know, I mean, whether we talk about refugees or drug flows or even Islamic extremism, the Europeans are a lot more on the front lines of those issues and others that were fighting on the ground with us, like the Georgians, the Ukrainians, the Emiratis. I mean, there were dozens of countries participating, and we informed them that, well, we were that was it. We were done. And I, for me, the lack of coordination uh, was the part that really just doesn't ring true in the way that President Biden has described all of this. Because we know that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, not denied, he said 4,000 troops, if you put the 5,600 with NATO to sustain it, uh, would have made sense. And if not because you want to, you could say one thing, I want to give the Afghans more time to try to establish their government. Okay. The other thing is just the benefit of us having a counterterror presence that's lethal and effective, along with the CIA bases we knew very little about uh, that were there, enables us to have a window in the communications between all the terror groups that still remain there today. But that case was never made to the American people. Yeah, I mean, I think a combination of uh, the branding of this, the forever wars, and the fact that a majority of Democrats, Republicans, and independents were saying consistently, we want out. Uh, Remember, I mean, the mission for this war has changed and morphed considerably over the four administrations that fought it. And so I, I think it was... You know, this is why it was so easy for Trump when he was running to say, I'm the one that's going to end this thing. And why it was so easy for Biden to say the same thing. And, and it was and the point is, if we were going to stay, um, it was not going to be like a Germany or a Japan type presence. It was going to be like a Colombia type presence where the U.S. would have a limited footprint on yep. the ground, would be providing intelligence, uh, but would not be fighting. And and that I think that that choice was not described. It wasn't described by Trump and it was made. And here's where I do want to push back, Brian. That choice was made harder 
on the Biden administration because of the Taliban engagement under the Trump administration. Remember that in 2009, when Obama decided to press ahead with the surge, which I thought was a mistake, Biden thought it was a mistake as well at the time, and he he opposed it. But he also, in 2009, said that he opposed a full withdrawal. He was strongly opposed to that. And, And I think that part of the reason he decided to pull out this time around was, yes, it was very popular, but also because he felt like the choice was made more difficult um, by the engagement with the Taliban over the previous year. And I think that is a fair criticism. I, I was I read the six pages and nobody liked it. I thought it was terrible. Ambassador Khalizad cut it. He's got to come out and explain what he was thinking. The, Trump got this guy, um, Al Brader, out of the Pakistani prison. The prisoner yeah. swap, I think, was ill-fated. But I think anyone who understands Donald Trump, if he got a call saying, do you want me to take Kabul or do you, meaning Al-Barder, uh, Barador, or are you going to take Kabul? You think for a second Trump would say, why don't you just take it? We just got to get our people out. There's no uh, way that the part of the agreement was it was going to be a coalition government, in my humble opinion, would have ended up being a Taliban-run government eventually. But he totally left that country unarmed. I don't know. It, it, it is very interesting to ask if Trump were still in charge uh, because, again, he wanted to leave and the generals ended up, you know, overruling or, you know, basically persuading him not to ultimately make that decision, one that he really wanted to make. Um, if it had happened under Trump, I suspect we would have seen a lot more and earlier focus on getting the Americans out. Um, which may well have included maintaining Bagram Air Base, but very little focus on getting out the Afghans that were working with the Americans. And, and you know, frankly, that might have been more popular in the United how, States. How is the Biden administration evacuation ejection from Afghanistan playing around the world? Uh, it, look, it's, I, I would say it's playing the, the actual evacuation, the, the job that American soldiers have done on the ground around Kabul airport is playing very well. I mean, these are incredibly brave young men and women that knew that their lives were in danger and it didn't stop them from doing their job in, in one iota. So that plays very well. But as, as I'm sure you know, um, because Biden made this decision unilaterally, Um, When the G7 summit happened uh, a week and a half ago, called by Boris Johnson, and he was very concerned when Kabul suddenly fell. He called Biden. Biden didn't return his call for 48 hours. Amazing. Kind of unconscionable. Unbelievable. Very strange thing. And so they they were very angry about that. And all of the G7 partners basically said, we want um, this this evacuation to be extended beyond August 31st. And Biden said no. Now, on the one hand, Brian, we can say, well, I mean, come on, how can the Americans be unilateral on this? On the other, it's a lot easier for the allies to demand that the Americans stay longer because they weren't a part of the Kabul airport defense. And and again, I think that's a mistake. I think that if you're fighting for 20 years with the allies, and you have to defend the airport as you're leaving, you should be defending it with the allies. And then it's not the G6 against the United States. Then it's 
everyone together saying, we're all defending the airport. How should we handle this evacuation? Are we willing collectively to put our troops on the line for longer to ensure that we can get all of our civilians out and all of the Afghans that work with us? And that, that suddenly that was a decision the Americans were making by ourselves, and the allies were saying, well, how come you're not doing this? You know, failure, whatever it is, when you know something's going to go badly, and ending a war like this was clearly going to go badly, that's a fair point. But you shouldn't be doing it alone. You always want to multilateralize. It's disrespectful. I know that you know I, I own a company, and I know that if I have bad news that I need to deliver or something tough that we need to do, I, I want to get buy-in from the people in my organization that have been working with me for a long time. That's where I think we really failed here. Absolutely. So when you look at the perception that we're going to act alone, that was something Donald Trump was labeled as doing. Well, he doesn't consult right. his allies, doesn't know what he's doing, he's a barbarian, doesn't understand it. yep. international relations. This guy's got 60 years' experience. All these guys are on his speed dial, and he chose not to call them, which shows that he knew that he had bad news and didn't care what they had to say, which is not going to be great when we try to unite them economically uh, and get on our side when it comes to China or any other thing like the Iranian deal. Uh we already see. I see two anonymous sources in this political story that talked about the horror of Biden's administration of leaving people behind. He called, Here's a quote from Politico. I was absolutely appalled and literally horrified. We left Americans there. It was a hostage rescue of thousands of Americans in the guise of an NEO, non-combatant evacuation operation, and we failed the no-fail mission. Uh, other sources had something similar to say, says the mission cannot be labeled as accomplished if Americans are left behind. Most of the SIVs are left behind. We got a lot of people who showed up at the airport last 48 hours. And General McKenzie makes a statement. I had seats. I was hoping Americans would join me, but they didn't. Did he not know the gates were locked? Yeah, I, I mean, clearly uh, the Biden administration did not want to be I uh, did not want to have to give the announcement that there were 150, 200 Americans that wanted to get out that we could not evacuate. Um, and uh, I certainly believe, I mean, uh, this might sound glib, but it's kind of like, you know, when, when you're, a, you're a passenger on an airplane and they've suddenly canceled your flight, they're in contact with you. They're, they, they're, they intend to put you on another flight. They intend to get you out. They feel responsible for it, but they don't yet have a plan for it. That's kind of where we are with these these civilians, is with the American citizens, the U.S. government is in contact directly with each and every one of them. They certainly have every intention to get them out. They view it as a responsibility, but there is not yet a concrete plan. And so we have Americans in harm's way still, and that and that is a, that's a serious challenge for the Biden administration. There's no question that is very different from um, those with special immigration status who are Afghans that have every right uh, to come to the United States. But we, at this point, clearly do not have a plan uh, to get all of them out. And, uh, and that, is, that is a horrible thing uh, for people that, were, that, that gave everything to be able to fight um, to, for their country, to defend their country. And another thing I'm upset about, I'm upset that we seem to be blaming the Afghan Defense Forces yes. for not fighting. Uh, I, I, because these are people that when the Americans were there on bases and providing advisory support and air support, they were the ones that were fighting, and they were losing thousands of soldiers. Just when under 70,000. the Americans 70, hadn't 000. lost one. Absolutely. Just under, just and, under but, 70. But, 
but right up until the end. And then for us to say after we, we leave Bagram in the middle of the night and don't tell their commander the most important base and, and, and we're engaging with the Taliban and we're not and, and that, that isn't a, a deal that's in any way been cut with the Afghan government. They were left out of it. And then say, oh, well, they, they're, they're not loyal. They're not fighting. They're not brave. They're incredibly courageous, these people. And, and, and we, we do a huge disservice, especially for those that do end up in the United States, do end up in Europe. We need to understand. The American people need to understand just how brave these, these folks are. All right, Ian, uh, Ian Bremmer here. Uh, he's go, we're going over some of the aftermath of one of the worst series of decisions in American military and diplomatic history. I'm sure you saw the Reuters report where they got a hold of transcripts of maybe the final call between Ghani or one of the final calls and the president, uh, Biden. Here's a quote. I need not tell you, Biden to Ghani, the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things are not going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there is a need, whether it's true or not, there is a need to project a different picture. Tell me if that doesn't tell you that Joe Biden knows this thing is going south. Joe Biden still is telling people one thing, and he's telling Ghani something entirely else. In the call, he asked for air power, and Biden says no. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's pretty clear um, that uh, Ghani's situation is rapidly unwinding and becoming untenable. Now, I mean, I don't have a lot of love for Ghani, a guy that was publicly telling his population, even his cabinet, I will stay here to the death. And then as soon as Kabul goes, he is on the first plane. And he's not even telling people in his own government that he's fleeing. They find out on the media. So I don't have a lot of confidence um, in the U.S. relationship with that guy. Uh, but, but it is true that Biden clearly knew that um, the, the Afghan defense forces were losing a lot of territory. The Taliban was feeling more confident, and they also had larger numbers of fighters that they could muster on the ground. Um, and, you know, you combine that with the fact that Biden also wanted out um, and, and didn't want this to implode immediately because he did want to be able to get Americans out at the very least. And that's something they were clearly trying the scenario plan for. Um, I, that, I think, is what's behind that conversation. But I do think that the communication to the American people um, was that, that Biden made weeks before Kabul fell. July 8th. Um, Im, yeah, implied, implied that – that they really didn't have a grasp on what the worst-case scenarios could easily be. Um, because, you know, this is – if you know that this thing could fall apart, even if it's not, even if it's not your base case, you need to prepare I the know. public for that eventuality. And, and also, let's keep in mind, I mean, the horrible, the horrible suicide attack by um, ISIS-K against uh, the Afghan civilians and our American servicemen and women that we just saw. But, you know, the, the most, I think, the videos that, that made the greatest impact on me were right at the beginning when uh, the airport was just overrun by thousands of Afghan civilians. Of course. Imagine, Brian, Ian, if, if some of those civilians had been terrorists. I mean, imagine. I, I mean, then, yeah. then you don't have three people falling off a plane. Then you have a plane... Blow, getting 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 shot down, getting blown up. 
in, with, with yeah, all of those civilians there. on it. Thanks so much. Global Perspective, Ian Bremmer, thanks so much. Brian Kilmeade, back with you. Close in just a moment. Don't move. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. You know, I think people should stop beating up on the administration so much because no matter how it ended, everyone wasn't going to be happy with the way it ended. So if there's any silver lining in this, it's going to be what happens going forward. You can't change the past. You can't bring those lives back, as awful as that is. And so, you know, I just think that sometimes, I think the administration is getting beaten up on this a little bit too much because there's a lot of blame to go around from four different presidents and who actually didn't have the guts to get us out of Afghanistan because they were afraid of this moment and what an exit might look like. Is that what it's called, guts or stupidity? Eric, listen, WNDB in Daytona. Eric, is that what you call it? Is he gutsy, Joe Biden? Uh He's gutsy to stand in front of the American people and deny all of this stuff that that we know that he did. He's denying it all. He's calling it success. I am sick to my stomach, Brian, because I am reliving a very important date in my life. October 23rd, 1983, I lost one of my best friends, Lance Corporal Thomas Stowe. He was one of the 241 Marines in Beirut that was blown up in his sleep. And the, and the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, stands there in front of we the people and does not let a congressman read the name of those 13 fallen men. Is that that Turned Brian Mass down, who lost both his legs in Afghanistan. 13 Americans, you can't read their names? Despicable. Don Lemon, nice try. Joe Biden screwed up, and he'll never, ever lose that label. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. The Northeast got slammed by a weather pattern, not even a tropical storm, but man, it was lethal, flooding. Uh, it kept me on Long Island, could not get into Manhattan today. I'm looking at some of the scenes of some of our reporters covering things. Uh, it looks like the arteries were all flooded. It looks like these, uh, I knew I was getting reports that I could not get into the Midtown Tunnel. So I did not want to wait. I uh, did not want to uh, uh, you know, wreck my car, not get in and not play, play this out. So I was able to come back to Long Island and find a studio around here to be able to do TV and radio. So I'm lucky to be doing that as I look around and see the damage done. I'm extremely lucky because once you run into that water, your car is uh, shot and you hope to survive. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is no evidence that cloth masks have any impact. No significant impact with cloth masks for people who have COVID as defined by COVID symptoms with antibody documentation. So cloth masks are worthless according to this study. Uh, But it's not stopping everyone from tearing each other's eyes out, debating it, fighting it, for it, against it, depending on the state you're in. Meanwhile, a study came out, it only makes you 10% safer. Right. COVID-19, the Delta variant beginning to recede as we try to talk about masks. And if you're unvaccinated, the government wants you to stay home this holiday season. Isn't that nice? 
Number two. And I think the worst thing is violating our military's credo of no man left behind, no one left behind. We left our American citizens behind. We left interpreters behind, and they have a death warrant on them, a bullseye on their back. They will be killed by the Taliban. Somehow that it's the American citizens' fault for not getting out is just astounding. And that's the way I took the president's speech. I'll get Chris Wallace to weigh in on that. Michael McCall, beside himself and emotional, left behind. More stories of Americans and allies left behind, including journalists, valuable, uh, who had that valuable American message of freedom. Number one. People have to begin now to assess whether this president was the man, the president they thought he was and would be. This is the first big foreign policy issue of his presidency, the first big crisis. And the condemnation of it has been virtually unanimous across the board, including many Democrats. But not AOC and not Nancy Pelosi. Not spinnable, Mr. President. Your words, your actions, your staff from behind the veil reveals you knew it was bad. They knew it was bad. And we all saw the catastrophe you caused in Afghanistan and the damage you have done to America, honor, American honor and prestige. That's your big three. Instead of laying this off on the generals, Shouldn't the commander-in-chief take full responsibility, given, given that they had to make a decision on Bagram based on the conditions that he set for them? On the strategic decision, that's a decision only a president can make. On the tactical decision of which is the right airport to have for an evacuation, of course any responsible president would give significant weight to the advice of the commanders on the ground, and their advice was to close Bagram and focus on Kabul. Under the bus, Pentagon, Chris Wallace joins us now. The untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice comes out September 7th. So it's a big week for Chris. But, Chris, another uh, penetrating interview at a very important time in our country's history. So Jake Sullivan not not, uh, backing off. It was the Pentagon's recommendation. Yeah, that's nonsense. I mean, that is what he said. You're, You're not nonsense. But I think his answer is nonsense because the fact is, that And I have this from unimpeachable sources, which I guess means it's not Donald Trump because he's impeachable. Uh, <laughs> see what I did there? I loved it. I, yeah, well, I just thought that up. But in any case, I have it from unimpeachable sources that back in April, uh, in the sit room, uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was there. The secretary of defense was there. And Milley said, we need to keep several thousand, somewhere north of 2,500, maybe 5,000 soldiers on the ground, and the president overruled him. And it was shortly thereafter that he said, we're not going to get out by May 1st, but we are going to get out by the end of August. And so every decision that they had to make from that point on is based on the, the number of troops that Biden said they were allowed to have. And, and they also, the president and the White House said, your primary responsibility is to protect the embassy. Well, when they were down to, what, five, 600 troops by the late April, late August, and if you're going to protect the the embassy in which they thought you know wasn't going to be taken over by the Taliban, you're going to have to protect the embassy. There's no way they can do that, and also protect the huge air force installation that was Bagram. So, yes, uh, the decision you could say that that was made by Milley, but it was made by Milley given the conditions and the mission set and the number of troops that Biden allowed him. 
100% right, Chris, and that's what you were getting at. And you saw uh, you have to look behind the uh, corner to understand that Jake Sullivan says, well, that's what they told me, but only with the limitations that they had. So what about this story? And I think it's just the beginning. I never saw so many leaks, but you have better perspective. Uh, they came out during the Trump years from the administration, upset the way the president's acting, upset about this decision. The general's keeping him under uh, lock and key. The military's denying what he wants to do. And then this story came out in Politico yesterday that seems to get a lot more traction today that said anonymous sources within the administration are upset by the way they handled this whole evacuation. Here's the unnamed official in the Biden in the Biden White House. I'm absolutely appalled and literally horrified. We left Americans there. It was a hostage rescue of a thousand Americans in the guise of an N non-combatant evacuation operation. And we failed that no fail mission. And that beyond its shadow of a doubt, is 100% true. Chris, is this just the beginning of the defections? Well, I don't know if the defections, but, you know, look, people are, are upset, and I think rightly so. They got the evacuation exactly backwards. You know, the way you would expect it to go is let's get the civilians out first, whether they're Americans or our Afghan allies that stood up with us for 20 years, get the equipment out, and then we'll get the soldiers out. No, they got the soldiers out first. So they went down from 2,500, which is what we had in April, down to six, 700 by late August. And by that point, it was too late to get out the equipment. And it was too late. And in addition to which, because you let the, the, the military go first and you gave up Bagram, you didn't have the air support. You didn't have any of the, of the ways of bolstering the Afghan military. So as a result, we actually helped precipitate uh, the Taliban sweep across the country and into Kabul. So we, we did it exactly backwards. And ultimately, you have to say that's the president's call. You know, he likes to say the buck stops there and then start pointing fingers. No, the buck stops there. Uh, absolutely. And we know they pointed fingers at Donald Trump. We know that he pointed fingers at the Afghan fighting force. We know that uh, the timeline was already made. Uh, and we said, now he said 19 times, I told the Americans to leave. They didn't listen to me. So basically, you could conclude perhaps he's saying, you got what you got. So we know this. Uh, there was a phone call and the transcript was taken. It was not denied on a conversation the president had with uh, President Kahani. And I'll read, you, uh, I'll read you a little bit of it. And it is uh, not good for the president uh, to honestly say he talked about perceptions uh, rather than the reality. And here it is. In much of the call, Biden, according to Reuters, focused on what he called the Afghan government's perception problem. Here's the direct quote. I need to tell I need not tell you the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things are not going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there is a need, whether it is true or not, there is a need to project a different picture. That's problematic text, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I've read the whole—well, not the whole transcript, but the highlights of uh, the phone call. I think I think it's a mixed message. Anytime the president is on the record as saying you need to say this, whether it's true or not, that's bad. You know, that it's just—it's just wrong. It's not what we're supposed to stand out for. Uh, our colleague Jackie Heinrich, who covers the White House for Fox, asked uh, Jen Psaki yesterday. You know, was he trying to spin the story? Was he trying to change the perception? She. You know, hopefully she could, Jen Psaki. But the fact is, yes, of course. The reason I say it's complicated is because it's also clear in that phone call. He is trying to get Ghani to lead. He is trying to get the military to fight. 
And, you know, there is every sense in that phone call that they don't think that it's a lost cause. Yes, the Taliban is stronger than they wanted to be portrayed. But I think part of it was they were he was basically saying, you know, you know, pull up your bootstraps and, and, and lead the country and wage the war. So I think there's part of it. But clearly, the whether it's true or not is, is, is not good. Hey, Chris, he asked he asked for air power. And if you believe that you had to, re- you know, to rouse him to get the warlords together, if you had to rouse them to get people to fight, you had to say to yourself when that phone, when that phone hangs up, guys, what happens if they don't? I don't think you should, go to, you should go to the Hamptons, Secretary of State Blinken. I'm not too sure this is a good time to put your voicemail on. On one ring, Jen Psaki, we could be in a problem as I head to Camp David in my polo shirt. Yeah, no, look, I, it's, it was a mess. May I now say, can I tell you about a success story we had in Afghanistan? Okay. Okay. Countdown bin Laden. And, and, and the reason, this is the book, you know, I obviously wrote it not knowing where we were going to be right now. But here's why I think it's a particularly timely book. Because, you know, look, we have every reason to feel bad about how we got out of Afghanistan. And the idea that on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, that the same people, the same, you know, the, the murderous Taliban that was ruling Afghanistan will be back ruling Afghanistan is terrible. You know, I, I can understand all the reasons why people uh, feel badly about it. But having said that, we did accomplish one of our my, main goals, which is we took out bin Laden and we really degraded al-Qaeda. And there was not a major terrorist attack on the U.S. homeland in 20 years. And the reason was because just as bad as all the planning was by Joe Biden in 2021, back in 2010 and 2011, the the intelligence community and the political community and the military community worked together flawlessly to bring down bin Laden. And this is the historical thriller, the day-by-day story. It starts on the day, August 27th, 2010, when the CIA officials come in to see Panetta, Leon Panetta, who's then the CIA director, and say, we have found this compound in uh, Abbottabad, Pakistan, and it may be the best lead we've had. It is the best lead we've had since Tora Bora, where bin Laden disappeared in 2001 as to where bin Laden is. And it goes right through all the meetings in the Situation Room, all the, the, the planning by the Navy SEALs and Admiral McRaven, and then we take it into the helicopter on its way across Pakistan, hugging uh, the terrain because they don't want to alert the Pakistani anti-aircraft. And then Rob O'Neill, and yes, he was the man, uh, conclusively, we know this, who, who, you know, in the compound, up the stairs, into the room, face-to-face with bin Laden. It's, I promise you, uh, we all know how the story ends. You will be, for the last 100 pages, on the edge of your seat. Just flipping pages. How does this turn out? Because it's it, it couldn't be a more dramatic story, and there's lots of new information. in it. Yeah, September 7th, it comes out, and I cannot wait. Um, it's one of those things where your interviews are in the news. So your history book, recent history book, is the news. So it's going to be a great combination to do a book tour, no matter what you can muster in this pandemic. But I'm going to bring something else up out of that story that works. When that chopper crashed, what did they do? They blew it up. When, they, when we yeah. leave this country, we left everything. No, you're exactly right. Uh, I mean, and in fact, they had a, a, a clear plan. This is going to be a three-and-a-half-hour mission because they were very concerned about, you know, Pakistani military in Abbottabad, which is where the, the Pakistani West Point was. 
you know, this was not some cave. This was a very subtle community. They're also worried about Pakistani air defenses. Well, you know, it takes them longer on the ground because they find this treasure trove of terrorist information, computers, hard drives, documents. But before they leave, they've got this stealth Blackhawk helicopter, which is propped up on the wall because it crashed. And they weren't going to leave and leave that technology to the Pakistanis. So they delay the departure until they have wired the helicopter and it blows up. And somebody was watching on the screen, CIA chief of staff, Jeremy Bassett. It was like the end of a Jerry Bruckheimer movie as you see the good guys leave and you see this helicopter exploding from the drone video. And you're right. They, they were not going to leave this technology to the Pakistanis or any of their allies. They were going to take it out. We didn't do that in, pa- in Afghanistan. 100%. Uh, Chris, I look forward to your show again on Sunday. Do you know who's coming on? We know one person. Actually, you had him in your big three, Mike McCall, the nice. uh, top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, as you heard in your clip. Very critical of what the president did here. Not, you know, the idea we'll leave nobody behind. We left hundreds, thousands of people behind. And that's one of the things this president is going to have to deal with. Go get him, Chris Wallace. I look forward to watching you on Sunday. Thanks so much. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Brian. Talk to you next week. You got it. Frank Siller at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, you, one 408 7669 A lot more to discuss. Brian Kilmeade Show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I got back from the road Saturday night feeling very weary. I had a headache and I just felt just run down. And just to be cautious, I separated from my family, slept in a different part of the house. And throughout the night, I got fevers and sweats and I knew what was going on. So I got up in the morning, got tested and it turns out I got COVID. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin, z prednisone, everything. Uh, and I also got an NAD drip and a vitamin drip. And I did that three days in a row. And so here we are on Wednesday and I feel great. I really only had one bad day. Sunday sucked, but Monday was better. Tuesday felt better than Monday, and today I feel good. I actually feel pretty good. Joe Rogan, the number one podcaster in the country, outstanding comedian. He does UFC commentator, gets people really aggravated because he could not care less what they say. And he said ivermectin. Ivermectin, there's a story I'm looking at right now in the Wall Street Journal saying don't take it, don't take it. A lot of people take it and get better. Joe Rogan took it and got better, and it drives people crazy. They say federal health regulators are warning doctors and veterinarians against the unauthorized use of the, of the drug. The FDA sent a letter out to veterinarians and retailers of animal health products. Well, I saw Senator Ron Johnson had a doctor on that says it saved countless amount of lives, and then they took the whole Senate hearing down. That drives people crazy. When the FDA comes out of nowhere, when Joe Biden needs some positive publicity and says we give full approval to Pfizer. Okay, people, what is that about? Joe Biden in the middle of Afghanistan, hellacious decision after hellacious decision. We need a booster shot. You need a booster shot. WHO says you don't need a booster shot. There's people at the FDA who quit because you said you had a booster shot. So that's the problem. We see politics all over this. And Joe Rogan does not care what anybody thinks. He's better. 
you know, the guy's obviously uh, very good athletes in his 50s. There's no uh, body fat on him. And we know that being obese is, is puts, makes you it's a target. Uh, there is another study coming out I find interesting that Moderna vaccines create twice as many antibodies as the Pfizer vaccine. The other big news to come out is it looks as though the whole variant, the whole Delta variant is receding. Much like everyone said when you look at what happened in Israel and the U.K., they're a little bit ahead of us. And guess what? They're just receding over there. And it's not as lethal. Nobody wants to talk about this receding. They want to talk about what a bad, reckless governor DeSantis and Abadar. More politics makes everybody distrust it all. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, Frank Siller is on the walk to never forget. And he'll end up in 9-11. He talks about the uh, Tunnel to Towers Fund, how it's going on the road as he makes his way past and right to the Freedom Tower. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much, everybody. Welcome back. In about 10 minutes, we'll be able to open it to 15 minutes, be able to open up the phones again. And I know you have a lot to say. If you're in the Northeast, you got walloped by this storm uh, in a stunning fashion. I guess the National Weather Service said something about it. But when you see a storm hit Louisiana and destroy it and make its way up, it usually dissipates. What it did to the New York Northeast area, when it uh, grinded up New Jersey and brought uh, New York to its knees, and especially the subway system, you realize the power that it has. Uh, and we'll take your calls then. Uh, right now, we're privileged to have with us Frank Siller, Chairman and CEO of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Go to T2T.org or Tunnel2Towers.org and, uh, and be a part. Uh, be a part of the Never Forget Walk. Frank has started his Never Forget Walk on August 1st. Over the course of 42 days, he walked 500-plus miles from the Pentagon to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to the World Trade Center, where he will arrive uh, soon on Saturday, uh, September 11th. And, Frank, not only do you work hard, work on the phones, using your contacts, you're actually putting your going through sneakers after sneakers uh, for a great cause. Frank, where are you? How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm right outside of Easton, of Pennsylvania. Uh, we have a beautiful parade there this coming Saturday. Uh, then I'm head to Morristown, and Morristown, another parade that we're going to have there. And all first responders will be out there, and people that served our country will be joining us. And I'm talking like a couple of thousand people will be will be out there. And um, and then I'm heading back to uh, New York City. And I'm actually going to be walking through Staten Island, my hometown, on September 9th. And the 10th, I'll be walking through Brooklyn. And, of course, on the anniversary of 9-11, I'll be walking, um, you know, through the tunnel, just like my brother ran through it uh, 20 years ago. And uh, I can't wait till I'm there and uh, honoring what he did. Yeah, also, I should, I should mention, too, a couple of weeks ago, you were kind enough to invite me to your Tunnel to Towers Foundation uh, concert, which was unbelievable. It lasted four hours and, uh, and great awareness, great respect for your organization. You had a star-studded event in the pouring rain. Uh, there was a warning of a hurricane. Still two-thirds of the place was sold out. And, Frank, the, even when the bay was flooding the theater, excuse me, the, yeah, the Jones Beach Theater, they just moved the first 10 rows back until the water receded, and then we went right back to our seats. What was it like for you up there? 
Uh, it was it was incredible because, you know, nobody cared that it was raining and it was raining hard at times and uh, nobody cared. And, and somebody said to me, are you surprised this day? And I said, no, uh, these are full of first responders out here, cops, firefighters. They you think they're worried about a little bit of water. Uh, we're here honoring those who who died uh, 20 years ago. Uh, they're not going to leave. They're not going to leave for anything. And. You know, when it poured, they would try to get some shelter. And then as soon as it slid up a little bit, they were all coming back out and sitting in their seats. And But I'll tell you, the, all, all the bands that played, they were just so moved by – they said they'd never seen anything like it. They said most places would have cleared out, but uh, nobody did. So, look, everything we're doing this year, Brian, is to make sure that we never forget what happened 20 years ago. My brother running through the tunnel with his gear on his back. I mean, he inspired his oldest siblings to do good, and that's why we started this foundation you know we're taking care of these great American families that are left behind. Thirteen of them, you know, just gave their lives for our country and over in Afghanistan. We will be helping those that fit our qualifications, uh, those who had a, a young family. And uh, hopefully by this time next week, and I'm talking to you, I could tell you a nice announcement that we will be making about those great heroes and those and the families. Because that, they were so young. Behind. Frank, they were so young. All of them, 20 years. How many were 20 years old? That's what I kept on saying, 20, 20, 20, 20. I was reading the ages and saying, oh, my God. They were babies, and and, and oh, they were over there, and they just loved serving our country. So, yeah, it's it's very disturbing. So, Frank, you here we are remembering Never Forget 9-11, and now we have Afghanistan front and center and the terrible way in which President Biden decided to leave and the uh, and the fact that the Taliban's back in charge. Bill McGurn of the Wall Street Journal uh, wrote a column about this and then spoke about it. I want to get your take. Uh, he used to be a President Bush speechwriter. Let's listen. We've just surrendered 9-11 forever to the Islamic jihadist. It is now a double victory celebration for them. First, the original al-Qaeda strike on America, and second, the Taliban victory um, that we see right now in Kabul. You know, it, it, it just seems to me we're back to that pre-9-11 thinking. Remember when people used to say al-Qaeda was at war with us long before we were at war with al-Qaeda? And I think Joe Biden's spin that somehow the world watches the spectacle of us leaving fellow Americans behind enemy lines and concludes that America has greater resolve and greater capabilities going forward is just farcical. And I just want to get your take on that. I think people are remembering wow. that remember 9-11. Do you, do you still understand the terror threat, right, Frank? Do you think the American people want wow. to just forget it? Yeah, listen, we can't be naive. They're still trying to kill us. And, you know, the families that are left over there, and especially uh, any Afghan families that are left over there that helped us, uh, they're going to be slaughtered. And, and anyone that thinks anything differently is, is totally naive. But there are many Americans that are naive. So uh, I hope and I pray that we are not uh, thinking the same way we did before 9-11. Uh, I hope our, our CIA, FBI, et cetera, all our uh, those who protect us uh, are sharing information. I know they are sharing information. So I don't believe exactly what he said is 100 percent true, but I do believe 90 percent uh, of that uh, of his article uh, is is dead on. And uh, it is disturbing. It is so disturbing to 9-11 families. But think of Gold Star widows. Think of Gold Star families that gave their blood over in Afghanistan. And uh, it's just... Uh, it, it, the whole thing is uh, has them destroyed, and, and I don't blame them. So I continue praying for these families, 
um, and I could continue to pray for America that we uh, that we don't forget and we don't we don't make the same mistakes that we made before where we let our guards down and there's another 9/11 in our country. Right, Tunnel to Towers is uh, working hard for those who did, and to make sure we don't forget, uh, we have to keep our guard up at all times. Uh, hey, go to Tunnel to Towers. Uh, .org. Go, go to T2T.org. Do it right now. Pledge $11 a month. Frank's walking across the Northeast for you guys, so no one ever forgets. Do you have a sneaker sponsor, Frank? <laughs> I'm not going to name the name of the sneaker I'm wearing because I, I reached out to them to sponsor, and they never got back to me. So I will never name the, the, the sneaker that, that I'm uh, wearing, but they are comfortable, thank God. It's not um, Keds, right? No, it's not <laughs> It's not Keds. But I will say that I do have General Motors and uh, Home Depot who have sponsored my walk, sponsored the concert that you were at, and sponsors the Tunnels of Towers run, which will be in the end of September, the September 24th, 5th, and 6th. The 26th, of course, is to be the day that we all run through the tunnel uh, like my brother did. And on the 24th, we have Leonard Skinner coming and playing for us. Uh, then we have a great uh, – uh, we, we just have a whole nice weekend to make sure they commemorate uh, the heroism. That's just of my brother, so I want you to know that. I want your listeners to know this. I know my brother was one of 343 firefighters, one of over 400 first responders uh, that uh, did heroic acts, and so many civilians uh, that did heroic acts. But uh, for me, it is very personal. Uh, it was my little brother that gave his life, and I'm, I'm walking down to him but uh, in honor of all everyone that perished. I know. And if people see the sincerity with you and your family, uh, Frank Siller, thanks so much. T2T.org. Uh, help out any way you can. Thanks, Frank. I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Frank. Bye-bye. Right. See you in person shortly. When we come back, your turn, 1-866-408-7669. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What Secretary Austin and General Milley and General McKenzie did uh, was weaken us. Our geopolitical position has been weakened. This isn't just about Afghanistan. This is now about a region that has uh, nuclear uh, concerns with Pakistan and India. It has stability concerns up in uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan out west with Iran. I mean, this is a very dangerous neighborhood uh, that it's not just about Afghanistan. And then you extend it to the rest of the world and you see that we are weak. I've been being told by members military that I served with that uh, they're on the ground in other places, like Africa and other places, that uh, their partners are telling them, you know, we can't trust America. Do you believe that? Uh, that is General Dan Boldick, and he's retired now, Brigadier General, and he's uh, extremely upset, and he, Austin and Millie thinks they got to go. He says McKenzie is weak. Absolutely. They all weakened the USA. So if you're in the middle of Somalia, if you're working out in the Sudan, if you're trying to stop the next attack in Nigeria, or you're out there in Qatar, you're hearing, oh, you're an American. Oh, you'll use me as long as you need me, and then you'll throw me out to be slaughtered by my enemy. Don't think so. You're in trouble. That's what Joe Biden did. Donald Trump started, I know it, but Donald Trump also would listen. That's why we still have a presence in Syria. That's why he said, forget about rules of engagement. Go follow, your, go follow the objective, and that is to wipe out ISIS uh, in Syria and in, uh, and in Iraq. And then when the leading uh, terror target in Iran makes himself available, we take him out. 
That's what the president did, Trump. Not perfect. I don't love they dealt with the Taliban, but, man, we never would have been here. Um, I love them getting a lot of emails, too, and I'll get to the phones in a second. I get this from Seema Gosh. She writes, I'm residing in Tampa. I came to this country from Mumbai, India, worked hard. Me and my husband had climbed the ladder in our careers. We have retired, uh, brought up our son. He's a computer programmer. We could, couldn't do these things in any other country. Today, I am forced and disgusted by our lame duck president and the vice president, along with Pelosi and Schumer. We are citizens of a country, have the right and privilege to ask the Republican members of the Senate and the House to impeach him. It's not going to happen. Mitch McConnell said as much. Here's cut six. The, uh, if the president's not going to be removed from office, if the Democratic House, uh, narrowly Democratic Senate, that's, that's not going to happen. I think the way these behaviors get adjusted in this country is through the ballot box. There isn't going to be any impeachment, but I think they have a good chance of having a very bad election next year. Yeah, I'm not. They're in the minority. You need 60 votes. Let's not go through the exercise, the cost, the distraction. with so much to do. Uh, and but this phone call needs to be investigated. We can't even get Nancy Pelosi to salute the 13 who lost their lives. That's why it's important uh, to pay attention to what's going on when it comes to voting. I think it's about 2022, too. Vince, you're in Panama City. Hey, Vince. Hey, Brian. Yep. What's on your mind? Hey, hey, it's Walt, but no problem. Uh, one thing I didn't mention on your call screener is uh, people in Panama City are praying for the people in Louisiana. We've been through this with Hurricane Michael three years ago, and I know there's a lot of support over here, people sending supplies and everything to help. But anyway. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, they're out. Uh, they're out. It's a, a water event now, and now it's about power. But go ahead. Right. Anyway, uh, I think the worst travesty now at this point with our 13 fallen soldiers would be that the next news cycle just uh, – puts this on the back burner, this Afghanistan crisis, and I hope that doesn't happen. And I know that uh, you and people like you are trying your best to keep this at the forefront of Americans because it I, I just can't even express what a tragedy this is and how the administration has handled it, how Biden was so rude to so many of the Gold Star families. It's, it's just uh, he should resign. That, that's that's all I can say about it. Evidently, he was yelling at one of the dads. Dad was glaring at him, and he basically said, he goes, stop talking about your son. This is about our son. You should learn who they are. And he yelled back at him, I know who they are. I wonder if he checked his watch right after he did that. Uh, keep in mind, too, they're going to try to jam this huge spending package down our throats. They think if they can get through 9-11, uh, and if they, they, everything stays somewhat quiet in Afghanistan, people will forget it. We cannot. And I know Panama City, there's a lot of great patriots uh, in Panama City. So there's no doubt about it. People try to talk about January 6th. I talk about July 8th. That's when the president turned out everything he said was wrong. The Afghans were up to the fight. The Taliban weren't going to take the country. Senator John Kennedy, this is not spinnable. Cut 11. The last soldier left Afghanistan on August 30. It was an ignominious day. Whether you think we should have been in Afghanistan or not, the, uh, the withdrawal was a circus parade of bad decisions. Some of my colleagues in Washington are trying to spin it otherwise, Sean, but this one's unspinnable. Uh, you, you, can, uh, you can put perfume on a pig, but it still stinks.
the 13 service uh, men and women who, uh, who lost their lives in the withdrawal were and are lions. If nothing else, they're the reason you ought to stand up for the national anthem. Yeah, that would help. Senator Kennedy, yes, deal with the white in Louisiana. Now, a couple of things I think is important to point out. They have made this statement that most of the SIVs did not get out. Then who are the tens of thousands that are out, that are in Germany, that are in uh, Qatar, that are in United Arab Emirates, that are coming here to JFK and over in Dulles Airport? If most didn't get out and we're still missing hundreds of Americans, where are they? And this email comes from Richard. He writes me and says, I can't help but wonder, since General McKenzie said no Americans were on the last five planes that left Kabul and were denied entry to the airport per reports, it seems to me the priority in the Biden administration was to get out unvetted refugees first after looking at the numbers reported most Americans in SUVs are still there. That is significant and a good point. I'm not for I'm not one of those who says this is an opportunity to swing purple states. But they are not shy about welcoming in refugees and are not crazy or intense when it comes to screening. Uh, in terms of who he is and what he's done, Britt Hume was asked to go on with uh, Tucker last night. Excuse me, on a special report with Brett last night. And here's what he said about not forgetting Cut 14. As long as there are Americans there that want to get out and cannot or have not gotten out, and there are tales of atrocities by the Taliban, which I suspect will multiply in the days ahead, so such that even though we don't have very much in the way of news coverage coming out of there, word gets out. So it will be hard for this issue to fade completely anytime soon, which is not to say that over time people's memory of it won't fade, uh, but they will, I think, remember for a very long time the shaky a character who came out and made these bogus explanations of what was happening and why it happened, uh, said things that were palpably not true and was called on them. So the question becomes, yes, people may stop thinking about Afghanistan as such, but it really is a good question whether we'll ever look at Joe Biden the same way again. Absolutely not. I don't think we will. And also the military ice. Millie and Austin are in the wrong spot at the wrong time. They only had the guts to take three questions yesterday. Listen to what the door is open to. Cut one. As far as our dealings with them at that airfield or in the past year or so, in war, you do what you must in order to reduce risk to mission and force, not what you necessarily want to do. Any possibility of coordination against ISIS-K with them? It's possible. It's possible to coordinate with ISIS? Excuse me. With the Taliban to take out ISIS-K, a group that is basically rival Afghans? Is that really the path we should be going down? Hey, I got a quick announcement. Go to BrianKillMe.com. I'm going to be appearing, talking about history, talking about what's happening in the news all across the, the country starting in November. I'll be in Orlando. I'll be over in Jacksonville. be over in uh, West Virginia. Uh, and I have three stops in Florida. So I hope to see you all out there. Go to BrianKillMe.com. Just grab some tickets. The President and Freedom Fighter Tour. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York. Heard around the country, around the world. Uh, in this region, got slammed. The Northeast got slammed. It was sudden. It was shocking. We watched what happened in Louisiana. The hurricane downgraded even below a tropical storm. But massive flooding brought the number one city or the most populous city in the country uh, really to its knees, and multiple people have died, including a young child. So we'll cover the weather story as it develops, but I also know 
we're li- you're listening around the country where it might be the sun might be shining. You might have a great day and not know what I'm talking about. Bottom of the hour, Ian Bremmer will talk about this cataclysmic situation in Afghanistan and how we're perceived by the rest of the world. This guy's got a great perspective, great international contacts. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is no evidence that cloth masks have any impact. No significant impact with cloth masks for people who have COVID as defined by COVID symptoms with antibody documentation. So cloth masks are worthless according to this study. Dr. Scott Atlas, and he's talking about a study that's pretty much well circulated that shows it only makes you 10% safer. Is it worth it retarding the growth of our kids by doing this for a second consecutive year in schools? Meanwhile, COVID-19's Delta variant is receding. Nobody wants to talk about that. A call to mask up despite the flimsy evidence is driving parents crazy and dividing communities across the country. And the recommendation for that booster shot is getting pushback. Pushback from people inside the FDA and pushback from the WHO. And while the unvaccinated are told, don't travel on Labor Day. Number two. I think the worst thing is violating our military's credo of no man left behind, no one left behind. We left our American citizens behind. We left interpreters behind, and they have a death warrant on them, a bullseye on their back. They will be killed by the Taliban. Somehow that it's the American citizens' fault for not getting out is just astounding. It is. Uh, Congressman Michael McCall with us yesterday, left behind. More stories of Americans and allies not getting out, including journalists, valuable to the American message of freedom. Number one. People have to begin now to assess whether this president was the man, the president they thought he was and would be. This is the first big foreign policy issue of his presidency, the first big crisis. And the condemnation of it has been virtually unanimous across the board, including many Democrats. But not from AOC and not from Speaker Pelosi. Despicable and not spinnable, Mr. President. Your words, your actions, your staff behind the veil reveals you knew it was bad all along. And you told us a different story. Yes, you told us a different story. And now we're all witnessing the catastrophe you caused in Afghanistan and the damage you have done to American honor and prestige. But I want to start from here. First off, not everyone is upset with President Biden, AOC, replying to how everyone's on the President of the United States. In case you're wondering why people are going on TV relentlessly attacking Joe Biden for his courageous decision to leave Afghanistan when no other president would, here's one glimpse as to why war is addictive for the few who reap its profits while the rest of us foot the bill. Is that what they're doing? Scrambling for their lives, reaping profits? Is that what they're doing or fighting for freedom and liberty? This is someone who's absolutely clueless. I don't think dumb, but clueless to what the world is really like outside Queens and Washington and Instagram. What about Randy Weingartner, president of the Teachers Union, in case you want to know who they're in bed with? American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingartner. Quote, sometimes leadership requires hard choices that forego political expediency. Joe Biden is the first president to go beyond words and act on the war in Afghanistan. Listen, get your kids in school, get the masks off, and tell your teachers to get vaccinated. 
Now I'll tell you what the reality is. The reality is it's just beginning to get bad for Joe Biden. The reality is we now know about the transcript of a phone call with President Ghani where you basically admit you know the, the Afghan army is falling apart. You know they're losing, and you talk about changing a narrative, not the force structure, not the strategy. You don't give him the air cover he needs. He tells you he needs he has between eleven and 15,000 terror groups are pouring in overwhelming his men and women and intimidating them because America has made it clear they are leaving. And they're worried about their friends and family. He, they wanted air cover, front-loaded air cover to hold on to the major cities. He would not give it. He told us they were ready to fight. He says that Kabul wouldn't fall. His Secretary of State said the same thing. They lied. They knowingly lied. And listen to Jen Psaki when asked about the veracity of that phone call, which can't be denied. Reuters had it. Listen. Well, I'm not going to get into private diplomatic conversations or leaked transcripts of phone calls. Uh, But what I can reiterate for you is that we have stated many times that no one anticipated uh, the vast majority, I should say. There may have been individuals and agencies, so I don't want to eliminate that option, but uh, our a national security team, and no one in Congress, or I would say most people out in the public anticipated that the Taliban would be able to take over the country as quickly as they did, or that the Afghan national security forces would fold as quickly as they did. That is not true. Now we know it for sure. You didn't provide any leadership. You bugged out a Bagram in the middle of the night. You emptied the prisons. Pakistan was sending in their terror university, and you didn't help at all, and you knew Ghani had no spine. The guy's a college professor from Johns Hopkins. He ran for the hills. Meanwhile, the president speaks. He blames Trump. Meanwhile, the president speaks. He blames Afghanistan, not worthy of they didn't want to fight. What does he do? 19 times I told Americans to leave. This is not something you can spin your way out of. This is Joe Biden's Armageddon. He caused this. He wants to move on from this. And I tell the American people, three of ten, Three of 10 think he did a good job. 48% approval rating, down from 58 in just one week. I want you to hear Britt Hume, who put this in perspective. People have to begin now to assess whether this president was the man, the president they thought he was and would be. Uh, After all, this is the seasoned foreign policy uh, expert, uh, former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a post he held twice. Um, uh, the kind of man they believed, I think, would not make serious foreign policy mistakes. And yet, this is the first big foreign policy issue of his presidency, the first big crisis. And the condemnation of it has been virtually unanimous across the board, including many Democrats. Not to mention that it has gotten a level of criticism from the mainstream media one rarely sees directed at a Democratic president. Hey, listen, he's not a fan of Joe Biden. He says he cognitively, he has declined. This is what Joe Biden always thought. And we even have, and I'm going to play it at some point uh, this week, what he has said in the past about Afghanistan when he wants to build a democracy. Then he says we can't, and he fought against the surge. So we, we have left 33 Black Hawk helicopters, 169 arm, armored uh, personnel carriers, 22,000 armored uh, Humvees, even if they're not all together, I saw enough in the parade in the street yesterday to know we have left way too much behind. 
And I think it's good. Al Jazeera reported that we did take apart a lot that were in Kabul and made them unoperational, and they were upset by that. But I did see a Black Hawk in the air. Remember, they can only fly Russian helicopters. You are wrong. Remember the pilots who were in the Afghan army? That's why they were being assassinated. That is wrong because the Taliban figured it out. And I worry that they're going to try to go and pressure Uzbekistan, who has 22 of our fighter jets flown out by what was left of the Afghan army, pressure them to come back. They say it's their spoils of war. And sadly, General Milley and company keep saying that maybe the Taliban can be allies against uh, ISIS-K. No, they're not. Did you see them walking through Kabul with a casket of the U.K., French, and the U.S.? That is not a group that wants to be a part of the world community. And I bring you to some of these quotes from others that have worked for the Biden administration that have came out yesterday, and I think it's important. It is beginning to come apart from the inside out. The vice president is invisible because she's incompetent. Meanwhile, an unnamed source, it was a hot inside the Biden administration. It was a hostage rescue of thousands of Americans in the guise of an NEO, non-combat, non, uh, uh, non-combat situation. And we failed the no-fail mission. An NEO is a non-combat evacuation operation, and we failed. Another White House official told Politico that the mission cannot be labeled as accomplished if Americans are left behind. And yesterday we told you that Josh Rogan came out and told us that hundreds of uh, members of Radio Free Europe and Radio Free America, Voice of America, were left behind. 600-plus, they will be murdered on the spot if they're discovered. Don't let anyone kid you. People are being assassinated and tortured right now because Joe Biden had a campaign promise, and he's totally inept, and the military has let us down. Not the men and women who fight, but the ones who lead. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show, an important show. Don't go anywhere. one 408 7669 Getting past all the rhetoric, it's Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other, it's Brian Kilmeade. There are so many heroic battles and and so many great war fighters that fought over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. And I think people have to get a perspective, even though Joe Biden screwed it up worse than anybody else I can imagine. And he embarrassed the nation and he embarrassed the West. As we watch these seventh, these seventh century uh, warlords, men in moccasins, uh, take the capital. You didn't run over Americans. We pulled back. The Afghan army fought, but they had no leadership and air cover. And all these other terror nations rallied around to uh, the Taliban to take down Kabul, Mazari Sharif, Jalalabad, Kandahar. Ultimately, in such a rapid form, Joe Biden... And Ghani was totally caught by surprise, and they shouldn't have been. That'll be the story. One of the people I have a chance to talk to over and over today on Fox and Friends, I had a chance to talk to four Navy SEALs, all of which are running for office. And that didn't count one that is already overseas that I know is running for office, too, that wrote me, doesn't want to talk about his mission that he's on. But so many are back in action trying to save those who are left behind, and there were thousands left behind inside Afghanistan, and they're being slaughtered right now and running for their lives, afraid to put on their cell phone because it would light up the tracking system we left behind. One of the people I had a chance to talk to is one of those heroic figures. He's now a Fox News contributor, uh, Dakota Meyer, a U.S. Marine. And uh, September 8, 2009, he acted so heroically, he got one of the most prestigious honors uh, in American history. He was, uh, he was uh, oh, in his war in Afghanistan. He got the Medal of Honor for his valor in battle. 
And when you have the Marcus Luttrells of the world, the Morgan Luttrells of the world, those who uh, fought over there, who give, gave so much and were so resourceful and lethal in fighting against these savages, I hope it doesn't sully their past, their background, but I wanted to get their perspective, Dakota Meyer in particular, their perspective on just giving up all these bases. Some of these outposts he fought for, his friends died for, he fought to take over, had to defy command to do it. That's how he was ultimately singled out. So I wanted to get Dakota Meyer's take, especially on this phone call, the phone call that revealed that he wanted Ghani to put up a brave front, change the optics, change the narrative, and make things seem better than they are. That's politics affecting warfare. Here's my interview this morning, just a short time ago, with Dakota Meyer. The Taliban continuing to parade around, and this kills me, uh, all around with the U.S. equipment. They have their arms, they have their weapons, they have the outfits, and even aircraft left behind by the United States. This, as the Biden administration reportedly directs its federal agency to scrub websites of official reports detailing the vast amounts of weapons sent to Afghanistan. Unbelievable. Here React Medal of Honor recipient and brand new Fox News contributor, privileged to have him, Dakota Meyer. Dakota, we've Thank been you. showing some of this video from last night. So glad you're here, part of the family. But we're showing to this video the armored Humvees, the Blackhawks flying in the air. We've seen the uh, Haqqani Network uh, soldiers and these Taliban walking around in our camouflage outfits. What's it like for you? Oh, I mean, look, I think it just it, it goes into first off, I'm not surprised by any of this. I don't think that anyone who worked with the Afghan National Army, uh, who worked next to the, 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 the soldiers, I mean, obviously the special ops side of it, uh, those guys are still over there hammering down and fighting and, and trying to, to get a stronghold. But as far as the, the Afghan uh, National Army, I mean, I, I don't think any of us thought that they would last three days after we left. Right. I mean, obviously, we provided superior air support to them. Um, and, and we just we just didn't see that. So, I mean, it's just terrible. It's terrible because, you know, the protocol is, is that if, if I have something that, you know, sensitive equipment that, that, that we are going to have to leave in an area where it could potentially be compromised by the enemy, we destroy it. I mean, you look that you've seen this in a, a very famous mission whenever with Rob O'Neill and them going after uh, bin Laden, you know, they destroyed that helicopter on site before they left that. That is that is the protocol for us. And for us to sit here and leave all this military equipment, Blackhawks, you've got them flying around in our Blackhawks. It took them three days to learn how to fly our Blackhawks, right? And and if, if it just it's terrible that we left military equipment over there to where more people are going to die at the hands of U.S. equipment. And Dakota, this is what I worry about this kind of international relations section. There's about 23 Blackhawks and planes and fighter jets that went to Uzbekistan. Are they going to pressure the government of Uzbekistan to fly them back? I don't know where their loyalties lie. The other thing is, now that you find out about this phone call, that Joe Biden knew this thing was going south, and he wanted to change the optics and the narrative, they should have been moving on this instinctively. General Milley should know that like the back of his hand. Where was the protocol? Where was the military mind? Yeah, I mean, listen, the accountability has to start at the top, right? I mean... Uh, yeah, a military, uh, I mean, with General Milley, like all of them knew this was going on. There's no more hiding this anymore, right? Like the, the conversation has been leaked. Uh, Jen Psaki's not even commenting on this. So I think what you'll see here in the next month or so is Jen Psaki gets switched out, right? How do you get the 
How do you get this to move on? They're just trying to buy time and not answer it, hoping that the uh, American people will quit caring about this, that something else will pop up. You know they're sitting back and just hoping that something else pops up to take over uh, the, the news cycle. And I just want to say this, and I think it goes without saying, for those who fought and say, why did I give? Why did I fight? Why did I bleed? Uh, you gave, uh, for 20 years, you gave people an opportunity for freedom and liberty and showed them what the world could be. And that's why they're struggling to keep that going. They didn't know there was a real, there was a real world beyond the 7th century they were stuck in. And there's tens of thousands that now know, and you've changed so many lives. You didn't lose a battle. These, these uh, pol politicians and officers were not worthy of you. Thanks, Dakota. Thank you. It's always great talking to Dakota. You're going to hear a lot more from him. He's going to be all over the channel. But just think about what we left behind. 33 Blackhawks, 169 armored personnel carriers, 22,000 armored Humvees, 358,000 assault rifles, and all these Blackhawks and these fighter jets. It could have been a lot worse because some of these pilots, to save their, their them and their family and, and the jets, they went to another country. I think most went to Uzbekistan. Then they are wanting him back. This Taliban government says it's our property. We want it back. And evidently, and I played this cut earlier, Al Jazeera, uh, uh, one of their reporters was brought to Kabul and said, we want to show you everything we got. And we did effectively destroy anything we got a hold of and made it inoperable. And they were all upset saying this is our property. No, it's not our property. It's America's property. Give it to the Afghan fighting force, many of which fought hard. But when we abandoned their command, when we abandoned the air power, when everyone rallied around the Taliban of all these nations, 10 to 15,000 Lethal warfighters join the Taliban to take these cities while we leave Bagram in the middle of the night. You combine all these events, and you want to be Joe Biden and say the Afghan army didn't fight with, gal with valor? That's kind of wrong. You heard Ian Bremmer earlier, a different hour, when you say, I blame 19 times I told Americans to leave. They basically didn't listen. You blame the Americans? That's totally wrong. Blame Donald Trump? I looked at his six-page deal. You cannot blame President Trump for this. This is all you. You wouldn't push it past August 30th. You're out. You want to change the subject. I will not let you. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening. Stuart Varney comes into studio. Put the economic perspective front and center. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Well, it should have been a positive, and it was a massive negative by anybody that uh, has a brain and that reads 95% of even the media that you talk about. It's, uh, it's terrible. The platter was set. We're all set to have a victory in terms of getting out and getting out with dignity, and you could even say with victory. And uh, it was all lined up. The Taliban was petrified of us. They were all... They were just staying away, and all he had to do is take what we did and finish it up and take all the equipment out. I actually said every nail, every screw, I want everything out, and the people out, obviously. You start with the people and then the equipment. That was Donald Trump with Stuart Varney and Varney and Company and FBN uh, earlier this week because when Joe Biden gives a speech, he likes to bring up the Trump deal. This is the deal was dropped for me. I was supposed to get out May 1st. I extended to August 30th. And uh, I wanted to get out anyway, but Donald Trump left me no choice. He boxed me in. Stuart Varney here now. Stuart, the one thing I would have to say, what Trump just said, I have a hard time believing that even his critics would deny. Trump is so money and driven. When it came to the only reasons he didn't pull all his troops out of Syria is like the oil's going to go to the Iranians. That flipped him out. He said, we're going to keep some. 
And when you think he's going to leave American equipment, American money to this evil organization, you are nuts. He would never have done this. Look, Donald Trump, President Trump said, yeah, we're going to get out of Afghanistan in the year 2021. We're going to get out on May the 1st. But he laid down conditions. He told the the Taliban, had a phone call with their leader and laid down the law. Barador. Barador, that's right. You lay a hand on a single America. You harm one American, and we know where you live. We'll J-damn you. He didn't use that expression, but he said, we know where you live. And they That did. was a threat that the Taliban understood. It was a powerful threat. They understood it, and they abided by the conditions. They did not touch Americans. Then mm-hmm. uh, Biden becomes the president. Americans were attacked in Afghanistan, and Biden did nothing. And the result is... All bets off. They knew perfectly well they could storm in with impunity, and that's exactly what they did. So do you think that even Trump's greatest critic would have thought if he got a call from Barador and said, I don't plan on taking Kabul, but the army has left, the ministers are being looted, do you want to go in or do you want me to go in? Do you, what do you think Donald Trump would have said? That's a very hard question, but I know what the conversation you're talking about because that was offered to Biden. Do you want us to go into Kabul and control it, or do you want to? And we said, no, no, we'll just take the airport. We're satisfied with the airport. What a catastrophic mistake. If it had been Donald Trump as president, I don't think we would have been in that position in the first place. And I think he would have said, yeah, we'll, t- we'll take Kabul. We'll come back. A couple of things. This is the deal. It's very simple. It doesn't. It's not a lawyer speak. This is the six-page deal, uh, the framework that uh, – uh, Zal Khalazad cut, and he's straddled two administrations. I think he's done a terrible job. Uh, I was not thrilled with the 5,000 to 1,000 prisoner swap. We're giving out 5,000 of theirs. We get 1,000 back for the Afghan army. But that's where it stopped. They left Bagram Air Base. That's a Biden call. They left the prisoners there. That's a Biden call. When, they, when, when Gahani called up and the transcripts are now out and said, I need air cover, Biden didn't give it to him. That's a Biden call. This is on Biden. This catastrophe and the deaths are on Biden. And you know what? This is not going to go away. The president wants to turn his back on Afghanistan. He wants to move on, but he will not be able to. And frankly, I think America's in trouble here. The whole country is in trouble. We've got an incompetent team in place, and they're going to be in place for the next three and a half years. The president's not going anywhere. The vice president... We don't have much confidence in her. Where is she? Well, yeah, where indeed. We don't have much confidence in her. And then there's the defense secretary, the national security guy, and the foreign secretary, the State Department guy. They're probably going to stay. There'll be a great deal of pressure for them to resign. I don't know whether they will or not, but this is the team that we've got for three and a half years. That is a significant problem. Stuart Varney here, Varney and Company, and you can watch Varney and Company every single day from 9 till noon. Uh, Stuart used to come in all the time until they expanded your show. It really hurts my feelings. You never <laughs> thought about that. Uh, but, Stuart, there, uh, this is my concern, but, and I think you know it can't be helped, and this is your, your breadbasket, and that is money. And the president's going to say, no one cares about foreign affairs. The American people after 9-11 are going to put this in their rearview mirror. They didn't like Afghanistan anyway. And they're going to have a big victory, a Joe Biden victory, that $3.5 trillion, which is more like $5 trillion, He's going to the reconciliation package on simply party lines. Number one, what will that do to America? And will, will he be right? 
Do Americans care more about the $3.5 trillion that they care about Afghanistan? I certainly hope that they do not care more about free stuff than they do about the disgrace of Afghanistan. But you put your finger on something that's important because the news cycle moves very, very quickly. The election is not until another 14 months away, 13, 14 months. That is a long time. If Biden comes along and says, hey, look, forget Afghanistan. Look what I'm doing for you. Free college, free pre-K, free eyeglasses, free dental, expanded Medicare, all kinds of free stuff, including free money. You got all of that. You vote for me, forget Afghanistan. Vote for me and look what you'll get. That would be a disaster. It's a very intriguing political suggestion, which I can see some people agreeing with. and say, yeah, give me the money. I can see that. But that would be a disaster for America. It would create a completely different neo-socialist society, something for nothing, and our economy would suffer mightily. So voters will say, I got free after-school lunches. I got free preschool. I have free elder care. I have free community college. I'm able to transition some of my economy to this green economy, this green militia that's going to go out there and hunt people down. That might be get you the young vote. So when you give people free stuff, it blows up the whole free market concept. It blows up capitalism totally. in America. It's socialism. It's basically European-style socialism coming to America. It's probably worse than European-style socialism because Bernie Sanders, he ain't satisfied with just a few handouts here and there. Chairman of the Budget Committee. He's the Budget Committee chair. He wants to transform America. Won't be satisfied with anything less. I think there's going to be hell to pay. Because I think the moderate Democrats are going to turn around and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. America doesn't want all this free stuff. We can't vote for it. If that happens, you've got a divided Democrat party in which the left, the far left, will be mightily disappointed and absolutely outraged. I know these people. I was brought up with them. Hell hath no fury like a socialist spurned. Right. Uh, that's, I love that. Uh, the problem I have with the moderates is they folded under Nancy Pelosi before. Remember, they said, I will not look at the 3.5 until you pass the bipartisan bill. Within two days, Josh Gottheimer and the problem solvers and the so-called moderates flipped in consultation with Joe Manchin so where are on they now? the Senate side. Where are these moderates now? After this disgrace in Afghanistan, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? I mean, they want to get reelected. Do they think that the best way to get reelected is to forget Afghanistan and vote for free stuff? They might. But what message do you have for working class people that in the long run, that check that you're getting for having kids, that's the thing that came out of the $1.9 trillion, the free junior college and everything that we just mentioned before is bad for you? In my opinion, nothing is free. And everybody knows it. How do you it. message that as a, pol- as a Republican politician? You think health care is expensive? Just wait till it's free. I know that's kind of a joke, but it's absolutely accurate. I just have a basic belief in America's understanding of how the economy works and how money works. You ask, how would I message that? Very simple. Socialism doesn't work. It's something for nothing, and it's beneath America. It's fair deal. Finally, the rich have had it too good for too long. Now we're going to get fair. The top, those billionaires have way too much money. It's time for them to share it. That's how they will That's how they that's will message, the message. it. And that's that's it not already, my belief. That's already the message. That's what's coming out. I don't think it works. I don't think we're quite ready to go that far. And I absolutely cannot see 
all Democrats, the entire Senate Democrat contingent, all of them in lockstep voting for another $5 trillion worth of spending because they know perfectly well you'll get inflation before the 2022 election. All right. So why should we care about capital gains? Why should we care about raising the corporate tax? What do you think it means for investing and has it affect you if you're not one of those so-called um, a rich who've had it too good for too long. We'll discuss that with Stuart Varney from Varney & Company, which you can listen to from 9 to noon on FBN. Don't move. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Are you fully invested in the market? No, I'm not. Uh, I really am not. Too much. I was never a big stock market person, but you know, I, I did for a period of time, and it was good. You know, if it goes the right way, it's good. If it goes the wrong way, it's not good. But you know, I built a foundation that was so strong with the uh, with all of the things, including the tax cuts. I hope they don't get rid of the tax cuts, because if they do, you're going to see people, companies leaving our country again. I, many, many countries, companies came into our country after I got elected because of the tax cuts and because of the fact that they could bring we took in trillions of dollars of money that was outside our country that couldn't be taken in and they used it within our country because i made it possible to bring that money back in before it was impossible but we've created we created a foundation that was so strong that we had the best economy in history and then we had the pandemic and then we built it a second time and we handed over the foundations of something great and that was the President of the United States with Stuart Varney uh, earlier this week. And he's talking about the economy, the market. He's not a big investor. He's a real estate guy. We know about his golf clubs and his hotels and other things that he did. But right now, he says about this corporate tax rate, these corporations aren't paying any taxes. It's about time we raise their rates. All these corporations, so they went from in the 30s to what? 20, 21. 21. Yep. And now they're 21%. talking about pushing it up to 28. Yep. Manchin says, I think, around 25 what would that – first off, did it? Did we bring as much revenue as we thought when we cut it? And what would be the ramifications if it does go up in this new $3.5 trillion? Trillions of dollars. I can't give you an exact number, but it runs to the trillions. Were brought back into America because we lowered the corporate tax rate. We offered a special tax rate to bring the money back in. It was a much lower tax rate. I think it was about 10 percent. The money poured back in again. Then we lowered the overall tax rate to 21%. More money came in because you could keep more of it. It's, it's obvious, isn't it? You now put it back up to 25% or 28%, you're no longer competitive in a very competitive world, and money will leave. They're That's talking it. about uh, upping. So, so they, if they settle at 25%, that'll be right where China is. We were just a little bit below China, right? Yep. yep. So, so you know, Ireland is is very low. Still low. And then we have Janet Yellen saying, I want to get the rest of the world to commit to no longer this race to the bottom when it comes to taxes. She's had success with that, hasn't she? That is extraordinary that Why? a Treasury Secretary of the United States would give away Former. taxing Oh, no, power. you're right, Treasury Secretary. She's the current yeah, Treasury yeah. Secretary. She's about to give away taxing authority to foreigners over American corporations. Have you ever seen a power grab like that? Is, is that making what about progress? Sovereign, what about economic sovereignty? 
Right. No, I don't think it's progress. It's just another grab for the, the stock of money that they want to get their hands on. But, Stuart, I'm saying, do you think they're making progress on that? Is the rest of the world signing off on this? Uh, apparently the Irish say no and will hold out. Uh, I don't know about other nations, but they do want that. They want it. Yeah, they want a worldwide agreement. That's that's what they want, and I'm sure Janet Yellen is making progress, but it's a bad thing. Stuart Varney, they're talking about capital gains uh, going up to about 43%. Oh, please. What would that mean, and what do you think the reaction would be? Okay, let's suppose you make a profit of $100 on the sale of stock, okay, and you made that profit over a long term. You now pay a 20% capital gains tax. So you make $100 profit, you give the government 20 bucks. 20%. Got it. Under the Biden plan, you would go to, you make $100 profit on the sale of stock, you would go to around 40% tax. $40 out of your $100 profit would go to the government. The government's done absolutely nothing to make that profit. Nothing at all. Don't tell me they shared in your effort. They did not. They're just going to take a piece of your action. The result is there's less investing, there's less movement of money. And capital is starved. You starve for capital. And that's a terrible thing. Why do people not understand there's going to be a reaction to every action? Because they react emotionally. There is a very strong emotional reaction to when you've got stories of people worth $200 billion and people not making enough to meet the paycheck, every, the, uh, the, the rent every week. That is an emotional reaction because it's just not fair. Socialists always play on emotion not basic economics. They don't care about economics. They don't care about the money flow. They don't care about the growth in the economy. They care about power and taking what's yours. So I, um, that's true. And what I think, the same thing happened to Obamacare. They said, well, if you have over 20 people, you've got to offer them health care. Okay, I'm hiring 19. And then how many hours, when you make them over 35 hours, you can offer them health care? They're working 30. So when it comes to capital gains, rich, successful people are going to say, okay, you want me 43.5% of my profits. I'm going elsewhere. I'm going to go into real estate. I'm going to find something else to put my money because I am not stupid. Yes, that's exactly how it is. Money works in a way to minimize your loss of money. You will do whatever it takes to avoid excessive taxation. That's reality. That happens. And that's going to happen if they get their way. So, and we, uh, we'll see what's going to happen. So the other big story, and I, I, was li- I listened to you in the elevator on the way up to do the radio show because you had start your show right at 9. I'd finish up Fox and Friends. And one thing you said is, despite what's happening in Afghanistan and all the, discon- discon- against, uh, uh, the discontent across this country, the market continues to go up. Why? Because there is a wall of money that's just going right at Wall Street and right at the economy. Because, because okay. there's nowhere else to put it? No. The, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has been printing money like you wouldn't believe. They've got $8 trillion on their books. That is the money supply. That's money. $8 trillion. Congress has spent, what, $1.9 trillion on the first rescue package. Another trillion dollars is being debated. And another nearly $5 trillion is coming up. That's a wall of money. Where does it go? It goes to Wall Street. It goes to investments. It goes to companies. It goes to growth. In many ways, that's a fine thing. But you better get out of the way when you've got trillions of dollars coming at you because prices just go up. And inflation not transitory, is it safe to say? Does it worry you as much? Oh, I'm really worried about inflation. 
when you've got that kind of money going into an economy that's already growing, you always get inflation. We've got inflation now. I think it gets worse. Here's the thing. When you talk about messaging, that's what Republicans should be saying. That dollar's worth less because there's too much dollars out there. That's the messaging. You want to get to suburban housewives? No offense, but they still do most of the shopping. I know it's not sexist. It's fact. That's what, when everything costs more and they have less and they got to put stuff back, that's a problem. Inflation, as of right now, is running at 5%. Wage gains, as of right now, are running at 4%. In other words, your buying power is already receding even though you've got a wage raise. Inflation beats the rise in wages, works it away, gets rid of it. That's not a good thing. And if you get all this money in the system, there'll be a lot of high fives, but then there'll be a lot of regrets with 2022 looming. So much is at stake in these midterm elections. It's hard to believe. Uh, Stuart Varney, thanks so much. We're going to watch you every day from 9 to noon. Is that all right? At that, 9 to noon. Be there, Brian. Absolutely. <laughs> and if, by the way, if you ever miss us live, you get the podcast, BrianKillmeadShow.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.